Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Victoria Hannon. Victoria is a writer and photographer living in Melbourne. Kokomo is her first novel and was the winner of the 2019 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. And today, Victoria joins me to discuss her now-published debut, Kokomo. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners. I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, unceded lands. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast, we're all about books, writing, and literary culture. I love discussing Australian writers and their books with you. So if you could help me help others discover these great Australian books by giving us a rating in your podcast app, maybe even leave a comment. Let me know what you're enjoying about the show, which books you're loving. These comments, these ratings help put Final Draft in front of more eyes. It helps others discover great Australian writing. So today on the show in Kokomo, Mina has lived in London for seven years. Good job, nice apartment, and then there's Jack. Mina's mum, Elaine, hasn't left the house though for 11 years. Mina doesn't like it, and maybe that's even the reason she left London to escape. But that's just the way things have been since her dad died. That is until a call arrives from Melbourne. It's her best friend. Mina, it's your mum. She's left the house. Join me as we discover Victoria Hannon's Kokomo. Now, my name is Andrew Popel, and I have an exciting new book to share with you. Victoria Hannon is a writer and photographer living in Melbourne, and her debut novel, Kokomo, uh, we are going to be speaking about it today. It was the winner of the 2019 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an Unpublished Manuscript. That is an extremely prestigious award, and so many amazing books have come out of it. I can also assure you that Kokomo is one of them. Victoria, look, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Now, in Kokomo, Mina, Mina has lived in London for... About seven years. She's got a good job, nice apartment, and then there's Jack. But Mina's mom, Elaine, hasn't left the house for 11 years. Mina doesn't like it. Maybe, maybe that's even the reason she left London to escape it. But that's just the way things have been since her dad died. And that's her life until a call arrives from Melbourne. Mina, it's your mum. She's left the house. I mean, it's such a setup, and I think even that... Um, even that brief introduction doesn't begin to cover the, the, the gravity, but also the humour of those opening scenes of Kokomo. Mina's this incredibly realised character, but I found also that I knew her mostly through her thoughts, her outlooks on the world. It wasn't until she got back to Melbourne and I saw her around her friends that she became really tangible. And similarly, Elaine, her mum, is, is almost wraith-like until we, we take a dive into her memories. So can you, Victoria, can you start just ground me a little bit? Give me a picture of these, these contrasting yet so close characters. Well, that's such a great question. Um, I really, I think Mina is, I suppose, a, an exaggerated version of me and some of my friends, kind of an amalgamation of a lot of people that I know who are in their 30s or at least were in their early 30s recently um, and sort of realised that they were, well, they thought they were supposed to have kind of everything worked out by then um, and looked around at other people in their lives and saw that other people seemed to have their their lives together or on a certain path and I feel 
like I definitely spent my early 30s flailing a little bit and just trying to kind of understand where I fit into the world. And I was living in London um, for almost, well, almost nine years, something like that. And so whenever I would come back to Australia, it sort of felt kind of like I was doing the same thing. Just You know, you would be around old friends and you'd be feeling a little bit like an alien um, and just trying to understand where you fit back into this idea of home and even what is home when you spent so long living and so much of your like formative years, I suppose, living somewhere else. Um, so that's kind of where Mina came from. And then Elaine, so when I wrote the first draft of Cosmo, we really didn't see much of Elaine at all and I really wanted her to feel, especially to Mina, like she was just this kind of shell of a, of a woman and this absolute stranger that she didn't understand. Um, but then as I started to kind of get into the second and third draft, I realized that Elaine's point of view was really what kind of going to bring this story to life and give it the heart and the kind of grounding that it needed. Um, and so I started getting into Elaine's life and realized that even though kind of Elaine's way of dealing with trauma is to is to stay put and mean as is to get as far away from it as possible. There's actually very, very many similarities between the two of them that they don't even know about. They, well, I guess at different times they both sort of think of each other and how they're meant to fit together. And I think it's Elaine that has the the illusion of um, puzzle pieces fitting together and wondering where the Mina still fits. I wondered also about the way, the way you wrote this. I mean, it's, it's this really fluid sort of moving from what could be point of view a little bit first person between third person. Did that, did that way of writing influence the way the characters were being realised? I don't even think I gave it that much thought, to be honest. I kind of sat down and that's what came out. And I knew that I wanted their thoughts to be almost like visceral and I wanted you to really feel like you were kind of in this fog with them. Um, but it was just, I literally just sat down and the, the voice sort of poured out of me a little bit. So, yeah, I don't, it wasn't kind of a, a conscious thing. It just really, just, they came out like that. <laughs> I like that word visceral too. I think several times it pops up in my notes as I, as I think about them both. It's just really stunning as, um, as you were talking there, I was thinking back and I was flicking through my copy to the way we, we sort of see Mina. And, and as I mentioned, at, at first she was somewhat intangible because I saw the world, world through her thoughts, her outlook, her perspectives. And it wasn't until she was around her friends that she became tangible. And that does feel, that kind of does feel the way life can be a little bit in your 20s, in your early 30s, where you're not quite sure how to define yourself. So you have to be defined against other things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I really wanted this book to be kind of a, a tribute or a love letter to friendship because Elaine has such a strong friendship with Valerie over the road and then Mina's best friend is Valerie's daughter, Kira, and they're kind of like a little family together. But I think as these characters are kind of moving through their lives and trying to understand love and how it fits into their lives, they're realising more and more the value of those friendships. And I suppose in my life, my friends are probably the people that I'm most accountable to and the people that I look to for advice and just motivation. And, you know, they're mostly the reason why I wrote this book in the first place. Um, So I really wanted to kind of inject some of that into the book. 
That's incredible. Have those friends read Kokomo yet? Uh, some of them have. Some of them haven't. A few of them, like one of my friends in Perth just bought 10 copies. She's like, everybody's getting it for Christmas. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's very sweet. I mean, I hope that friend's friends know this and say, we don't want to wait till Christmas. I really don't think people should wait till Christmas to read Kokomo. Um, well, maybe she'll give it to her parents or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, you talked about friendship there. And, I mean, there are different ways and, and understandings of friendship and I, I, I guess in within the book and I guess also the complication of relationships between men and women. I mean, it's the first time we meet Bill alive, so Mina's dad alive, of course, his his death before the book begins has so much to do with what's what what's about to happen. And Mina's thinking back to an art class and her discovery of Lee Krasner and what it taught her about the ways women could be viewed as somehow an adjunct or an accessory to the man in their life. A particularly doesn't sound like inspiring teacher taught her that. Um, so Lee Krasner, she was working in the 60s. Elaine, we meet in the 80s. And now Mina. And they all suffer for not being men, despite the talent that they may bring to what they're doing. Should it only be up to them, though, to reconcile this, though? I mean, I, I was constantly thinking, you know, what about Bill, as great a, a person as he seemed? What about uh, Jack, who we haven't talked too much about, but, oh, shake my fist at Jack. Um, <laughs> or, or Jackson Pollock, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I mean, of course. I, I wish that it were the, the way in, of the world that men kind of realise um, this about themselves and realise their privilege and obviously what, the women around them bring to the situation. And I do think that, um, you know, Bill is a lovely man, but I think he's quite naive and stuck in his ways. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of sucks for Mina that she has this dad who she adores, just like loves him, but he's clueless too and kind of takes that difficult lesson from her art teacher for, and from her mum to kind of realise, start to realise how the world works. And yeah, of course, I wish it were different, but unfortunately, it still does work that way in many ways. Yeah, I mean, it really got me thinking. I think maybe with the exception of of Jackson Pollock, who I think was he was a little bit of a um, a little bit of a douchebag, but Bill. <laughs> yeah, Bill, I believe he was. <laughs> we can the estate of Jackson Pollock can tweet at to a final draft to us here. Um, <laughs> Bill Bill is a lovely guy, and even. Even Jack, who is his Mina's creative partner in London, is is a nice enough guy up to a certain value of nice, and it, it just sort of struck me that m- there are there are men, and they they seem to think that you know it's enough to be nice enough and good enough, and and it's almost like weaponized niceness because it doesn't address any of the really structural stuff that um, mean say Mina is coming up against in her in her work life and that really makes it so difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Nina is kind of like a middle-class privileged white woman and she's still coming up against these things. So just imagine how hard it is for everybody else. Mm. But yeah, I feel like in my experience, especially in often in date, my dating life, I find that the, the woke men or the men who claim their woke are the worst ones. I won't name any names. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there is kind of an an element of Jack thinking that he's a good guy and think I think he thinks that gives him permission to just behave however he likes and I mean I won't I don't want to give too much away but he's he's quite disgraceful in many ways. And I think even characters like Brendan who is 
um, the elder brother who lives over the road probably thinks that he's a good guy, but he also proves to maybe not be such a great guy after all. And it, it just really struck me that I, I think if you if you were able to to sit Brendan and Jack down like they were people and not characters in your book, um, but if you were able to sit down and talk to them, they would they would honestly believe that they were doing doing good and were receiving things on on merit. Um, I don't think they would understand that their behaviour has so many problematic aspects to it. Yeah, and I feel like this is part of the reason why we're in the situation we're in in the world is so many people are unaware of their privilege and the way, just how much power they have to change things but don't because they think they're fine. Mm. Now, also in that scene that I was I was mentioning, Mina, looking back, you you use the the vivid pinks and the oranges of Lee Krasner's combat to evoke this sort of uh, feeling or image of, of violence and softness. And it's this real, it's this remarkably visual scene. And again, it's just so very visceral. And I just really wondered what what role can art, can visual art like this play, or what does it play for you in the world of words that is a novel? Oh, wow, that's such a good question. Um, I'm incredibly influenced by visual art, and I wonder if part of that is also because I am a photographer. Um, But I see all of my scenes and everything that happens in my book in bright colours and in very, almost in action, as if I'm writing a screenplay. Um, And so just kind of the colours of the world and the colours of visual art. And I think there's, you know, reference to George, George O'Keefe's pink of something in the in the first chapters. Um, yeah, I feel like that stuff is so much a part of how I see the world and the things that I love to look at that it just kind of finds its way into my writing. Um, and actually, after I wrote the first draft of this book, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine and she asked me if the novel was going to read the way my photographs looked and I think that I hadn't ever considered that, that was a thing that could happen but actually there is kind of you know the photos that I take are quite hazy and a little dreamy and kind of maybe a little claustrophobic sometimes and I do feel like there's kind of a correlation between the visual way that I see the world and the way that I write the world. So I, I had not thought to look until now but is this is this one of your photos on the cover of Kokomo? It's not. I really, I, I wish that it were. And I kept trying to send photos of mine to my publisher to be like, what about this one? I know the photographer, I can get it for you very cheap. He was like, come on now. <laughs> we've, we've got this. We've got ideas. And I was like, okay, like, just stop. Stop it. Um, now, Mina returns to Melbourne but she can make no headway with her mother. And meanwhile, she's adrift in a world that that's constantly telling her that she's the one that left it. And I was really struck by that, that tension between the ideal of staying, and that's something that we see in Shelley, one of her old friends, um, and also the ideal of leaving that I think we can imagine in parts of Mina's life in London, although by now the reader has seen enough to sort of know... There's, there's stuff going on. Jack, I'm shaking my fist at Jack again. Um, it's a tension that I, I guess it's also a part of a certain kind of life in Australia. Of course, not everyone can afford or wants to go and live in you know, London, do the gap year or, or move over there. Um, but it's also a life that's now absolutely cut off due to COVID-19. Do you, do you think we're seeing that this experience has kind of become almost a cultural 
part of of that Australian growing up experience? I think maybe for past or older older generations potentially. I mean, especially doing the London thing. I mean, for me, I had two British parents and a British passport, so it sort of made sense that that's where I would gravitate. Um, but I think there is something incredibly valuable if you can afford it and if you have kind of that freedom of movement to be able to do it. It's incredibly valuable to kind of pick yourself up and put yourself down in a situation where you maybe don't know anyone and things are a little bit challenging just to see how you survive. And I was very lucky that I kind of fell on my feet and got good jobs and it worked for me. Um, but I did learn a lot about myself in the process and all the things that I went through while I was living in the UK were incredibly formative. Um, but I, you know, I know that a lot of people have kind of been gravitating towards New York and LA and people are trying lots of different things and it's pretty wonderful. Um, and even to be able to travel to kind of learn things about the world and yourself while you do that. But now that we can't, I don't, I don't really, I don't know, I guess people are learning about themselves in a different way and how they cope with a smaller life. And for me, it's actually been quite an interesting challenge to kind of find happiness in living a small a life and kind of work out where I can find joy in my backyard or with my cat. Yeah, you, you got me also thinking about that tension between those that, that have chosen to do that and, and those that not. I mean, I think I've only alluded to this, but Kokomo is also a, a really funny novel. It has some really ha-ha moments and then also some there's a there's a really great cringy moment where where Mina goes to visit Shelley in desperation there's a very formal sort of cocktail business sort of thing going on and there are some really cringy moments and I've just you know you kind of want to wrap Mina up but it also it also really highlights that divide between Mina who has left and has been gone for seven years and Shelley who has taken the deep dive into I am living my life and this is my life and it's it's settled in this place that I don't feel the need to leave. Is it does it become irreconcilable or is is it there for the, the, the trying for the people that are able to kind of get past it? Um, I think for me, because you know, I moved back to Australia. I'd never lived in Melbourne before, but I had a lot of friends here. Um, and I found it quite easy to slip back into life here. And I had friends that had traveled a lot and friends who were kind of very much doing their own thing, which was different to kind of what I wanted to do. But we still sort of, I don't know, you can always bond over that shared history. Mm. But I do think sometimes there are friendships where you get to a point where maybe, I don't know, it's time to say goodbye and you've outgrown each other or you're on completely different paths and that's okay too. I don't think that's a, a failure of friendship. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is an interesting experience to come home from being away for a long time and sort of just try and like reacquaint yourself with what life looks like here. And I guess that also then depends on the stories we're able to tell about our experience and other people's experience and what we even know of that experience. And, and, and this is where I sort of feel like I want to get to the meat of Kokomo. There's, there's a moment where Mina's catching up with Ben. They haven't really seen each other since before she left for London, back when Mina broke his heart. And so they're at a bar, they hear some karaoke, Mina loves karaoke. So Ben, ben goes to sing karaoke 
It's Kokomo, which, you know, it's, it's nowhere near the Beach Boys' best song, but it's still a real sing-along. Um, and Mina tells him, Kokomo's not even a real place. And I was fascinated by this, this conceit, this, the ways that we can wrap ourselves up in a beautiful illusion and convince ourselves that, say, an industrial city in Indiana is a beautiful island paradise. Do you think it's important that we maintain these sorts of illusions? Um, maybe at a time like this, when the world sort of feels like it's falling apart a little bit, it's kind of nice to have the idea of this beautiful tropical paradise where John Stamos is playing the bongos and everyone's drinking cocktails. That sounds pretty, pretty I, nice to me right now. I did not remember um, that from the film clip. <laughs> is that the film yeah, clip? John yeah, Stam- John Stamos is in, well, it's from the movie Cocktail. Of course and it so is. I believe yeah. in the film clip it has like Tom Cruise hanging, maybe making some cocktails or something. But yeah, John Stamos is there playing the bongos, mm. which just doesn't, like, why was he in the Beach Boys? It doesn't make any sense. But right now I would pay a lot of money to fly to a tropical island and watch that happen. Mm. Um, actually, not even right now, like any day of my life, even just before coronavirus, I would have paid money to go to a tropical island and watch John Stamos play the bongos. Um but I think I've forgotten what the question, oh, the yeah, illusion. Um, I, I mean, think at the moment maybe it is nice to, to keep ourselves wrapped up in those nice warm blankets. But I don't know, there was something very interesting to me. So actually we had, I had a karaoke party at my house and a friend got up and sang Kokomo. And I was like, where is that, the tropical island of paradise, of Kokomo? And I looked it up and it turned out that it is actually a place in Indiana and the Beach Boys just liked the way the word sounded, so they made it up. Um, and I was really fascinated by that idea of, like, the things that we just kind of willingly believe in our lives and what are all the lies that we've been told that we just have never questioned. And also, um, and there's so much that I'm going to be skirting around from here on out, I think, um, about the story, but the way we almost need certain illusions to sustain us or if they're not illusions, they're the promise of something that hasn't, hasn't happened, but that is what sustains us. It's almost like the idea of, of Kokomo until you learn that it's industrial city. It's, it's the promise of something that, that might happen that can sustain you. Yeah, I think definitely without giving too much away for Elaine, she's kind of had this terrible experience where her husband has, passed away and she's kind of shut down a little bit um, and there's been a carrot that's kind of dangled in front of her for a very long time and she chooses to she chooses a, a reality um, to believe is real and kind of that guides her for the next I, won't, I guess decade and a half of her life almost um, and yeah I, I feel like um Maybe Mina is doing a similar thing too. Like this, this kind of thing that she has with Jack is, and even just what her life in London is like, is a bit of a, a kind of a warped reality in her head compared to what it actually is. Yeah, I, I mean, I want, I, I would love to talk more about Elaine because in the second section, you actually move us into Elaine's point of view, and we become privy to her life and her desires. And I, I had the experience that I think Mina has has later on of kind of being surprised, but then also I was surprised that I was surprised about how complete her life could be outside of what we knew of her as, as Mina's mum. Do you think we too often f- kind of forget that our parents have these complete and often unfathomable lives to us? 
Absolutely. I think maybe it's when people have their own children or maybe when they get into their 30s or something happens in their family and they realize that their parents aren't these like, you know, model parents. They're actually just imperfect human beings. Um, You just go, oh, wait a second. Like my mom didn't become a person when I was born. She had a whole life of being a, a woman who had desires and passions and she made mistakes and all sorts of things happened to her before I came along and depending on who your mother is, maybe ruined it all for her. I don't know. Um, I mean, in Elaine's, uh, in Elaine's life, Nina was just an absolute gift to her and really changed her life in many positive ways. But um, yeah, I think it's really important that we look at our parents as these whole people who had lives before us and um, ask them questions, especially as they start to get older and really try and understand what those paths look like. Yeah, and I mean, it sounds like it's, for for some, it's about what that past looks like. Past looks like to you in hindsight. I mean, I'd really like to ask you just a little question now, just just about something as as small and simple as truth, because. There's, there's a lot of people kind of lying or deceiving in Kokomo and maybe not, maybe not, you know, the big lies, but they're subtle and they're pervasive nonetheless. What do we, what do you think we need from the truth? And I'm, I'm thinking about the final section now. I'm thinking about um, Mina. What do we need from the truth in our lives? And is it ever okay to take comfort in a lie? I sometimes think... Small white lies are the best way. I don't know. I I often see people feeling like they need to unburden themselves and tell a whole truth to somebody, but it actually only benefits the truth teller rather than the person receiving the news. Um, And I actually think that if we're just telling someone the truth in order to make ourselves feel better and it's going to end up making them feel terrible, then maybe we should reconsider telling them the whole truth to begin with. Um, which maybe is a controversial opinion. I don't know. I just think a little white lies can sometimes should be sustained to um, look after other people's feelings. Um, I think as a society, especially in Australia, we have a habit of kind of either like remolding or ignoring the truth of what happened in our country. And I think that um, one thing that we would be a, a lot better off um, if we did, uh, would be to actually start talking about some of the terrible things that colonization did to our country and that so many people and very vulnerable people are still feeling the effects of. So in that respect, I think the truth is incredibly important. But if you're just telling someone something to make yourself feel better, then maybe it's best not to. It feels like such a, a difficult question in you know, what we've sort of been forced to come to know as as our fake news world and it got me thinking back to what we were saying about a character like Jack who if he were called out on his behavior and I mean I'm just going to remind the reader you need to go and read Kokomo so that his behavior makes full sense to you but if you were if he were called out on his behavior he would he strikes me as the sort of guy that would say something like well that's your truth it's not my truth Mm. And, and the idea of of being able to look at what is systemically happening, not just what's happening from your own perspective is also incredibly important. And what you were saying there about, you know, the, the white lies, the, you know, things that you need to unburden yourself from maybe don't take into 
that uh, account, that bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Jack would probably believe that he's done absolutely nothing wrong. Um, he was doing a job where he was, um, you know, given what he deserved, I think it's probably what he would believe, but I think Nina would argue differently. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I think there's so many people out there who are probably just doing things that they think are good for them and looking after themselves and not thinking about other people. And I think that's probably part of why we're in the mess that we're in. <laughs> I think that's what was, what was so great for me or what I loved about Kokomo because for people who can't travel and for people who, you know, are, are stuck as we all are stuck inside at the moment, there was so much that felt familiar, so much that, that allowed us to travel in our minds, but that made it feel very, very personal. And so in the same way, the things that Mina has to deal with and, and the journey that we go on with her, you know, it was, it had that kind of cathartic element because they might be things that we all need in our life and going through it with Mina had that kind of comfortable distance. That's why I love reading. Mm. I love reading for that reason. It's just, it's. I feel so like there's also maybe there's something sort of cathartic in watching somebody hit rock bottom and doing some of the things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily feel brave enough to do. And whether I don't think Nina is necessarily doing them out of bravery, I think it's more desperation. But kind of the crash before the, the rise again is sometimes like you need to go through that with somebody. It's almost like you're doing it yourself. Mm. I am speaking with Victoria Hannon, and we are discussing Kokomo. Uh, it won the Victorian Premier's Literary Prize for an unpublished manuscript, and now it's published, and it's fantastic. Victoria, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it on Final Draft. Thank you. That was so much fun. That's it for this great conversation with Victoria Hannon. Victoria's new novel is Kokomo, and it's out now through Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the beautiful Blue Mountains. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on all your socials. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And if you click subscribe, well, there'll be a new Great Conversation for you every week. My name is Andrew Popel and I'll be back next week. I'm going to have more Great Conversations, but till then, wish you happy reading. Bye now.